0: Chair that you sit in to do your writing and, and agenting?
1: Uh, the agenting, yeah, I write actually in a back bedroom, sitting on a bed um, and typing I have so I have complete separation, I have a writing room for the writing. And I have my laptop computer all set up there. It's a separate computer and everything. Um, and it's a very Zen kind of space. I have, um, you know, a cherry tree, uh, whole triptych of cherry tree set up on one and a lotus thing set up in a mandala and it's just a very zen space Um, and that's where I do my writing Um, and it's downstairs and then my office is upstairs and there I have a yoga ball chair and everything and and it's just yeah complete separation different computers different spaces and I write first thing in the morning before agent me wakes up and is too
0: critical of author me.
1: (laughs) So it's funny, I talk about myself in two different personas and it kind of feels like that as well.
0: I feel like this should be the start of the show because that's fascinating. You've got two separate spaces. And so that um, it's like the passes of a hypnotist watch. I imagine when you get in there like, okay, this is definitely why I'm here. Uh, There's no need to look at whatever the other me might look at during this time. I'm hundred percent focused on whichever personas room I'm in.
1: Yeah, yeah. And in fact, as soon as agent me like wakes up, like as soon as I start thinking about a letter, I have to write to an editor or oh, I have to get this done and this done and this done, then the writing time is just over. Um, Creative me can't function anymore. I can't think of of my novel and my stuff. Um, And then I, I have to just go up to the office and start my work day. So I have to try very hard. Um, to leave my phone in the other rooms that it doesn't alert that I have work emails or anything else. Um, And I say try very hard because I'm a workaholic. So I'm almost never out of uh, reach of my authors. I'm almost never off duty. That's why I write first thing in the morning. I try and write, like I said, before Agent Me wakes up, before Agent Me is on duty. So (laughs) what I do is I get up actually at um, 5 a.m. every morning, and I go walking with my girlfriends. We walk all the way to the front of our complex and back. So we walk uh, over four miles every morning. And when we get back, I grab some coffee and I go straight to my writing room. And then I write, um, and like I said, I'm sort of trying to beat the clock before my agent self comes on online. And as soon as as soon as soon she comes online, it's all over. So that's, that's kind of how my day goes. Um, and then I'm up to the office as soon as my agent self is on the clock. And then I'm, I'm that for the rest of the day. So I, I can't write once that happens. Um, I can sometimes revise later in the day after my work day. But, but usually usually it's all over once the agenting starts. Because then that doesn't shut off till I go to bed. And even then sometimes I'm writing letters to editors in my head. um i actually have to go to sleep watching forensic files just to just to have another voice in my head um just to have something else going on to wind down again
0: sure nice comic murder before bed
1: (laughs) you know it's funny the um the voiceover for forensic files is actually very sato voice so i i know it sounds odd but it it, it's not that the murder is coming and some of them, some of them are, are too disturbing. And I, I do actually have to turn it off, especially if it involves children or something like that. Um, but, um, but it's it's strange how Sato voice and calming the voiceover is for Forensic Files, that show in particular. So um, I know I sound very bizarre, but um, I actually, uh, some of our best friends, we were talking the other day and they're like, me too. And we're like well i think that's why we're very good friends but we're strange in the same way so it uh
0: it, it works well it doesn't sound strange to me i love a good horror story right before bed but i imagine <laughs> that's, um, that's almost research right for when you're going to write your next thriller
1: uh actually one of my one of my stories disappeared did come from or the the kernel of the story came to me from a forensic files episode um the, uh, the episode involved a, a boy who was awakened in the night by a sound um, and um, was told that his mother, you know, basically went, went missing. Um, and um, he heard something that made him think that maybe there was more to that story. And I thought, well, mo- oh my God, what must it be like to be that boy who heard something and doesn't know what to believe, doesn't know what to believe about his father, doesn't know what to believe about the night that his mother disappeared, that he never saw her again. And I I couldn't help, my writer brain just was engaged and I couldn't help but take it from there and write a book called Disappeared, which you see in the screen, um, about what it must be like to be that boy. And and, um, and in my book to have um, a sister to, well, in his mind to protect, in her mind, I mean, she's her own character. It's told from both of their points of view. And one very much internalizes things, and one very much externalizes things, um, and uh, and how they both deal with this, but also investigate what happens um, in this household of now one parent, and what happens if that parent is responsible, and they are, and what happens if they're living with a killer, and and I I just had to write this young adult suspense novel because I was so. Um, wrapped up in the mindset of what it must be like to be this boy. Um, So actually one of my novels did come from watching Forensic Files. Um, So, you know, it's odd where we get inspiration and obviously my my book diverged entirely from the story. I actually was very careful not to learn more about that story while I was writing it. I've since learned a lot more about that story, which is fascinating. It's a fascinating story. but, um, anyway, uh, hopefully my book is fascinating as well, but it, uh, both of the stories are, are very interesting, but the psychology of it is what was so interesting to me.
0: And the book is Disappear by Lucine Driver, Our Diver, uh, who, uh, any, any esteemed audience uh, who's listening to us can check the show notes or pull it up uh, while, while we're talking. So, um, with an idea like that, when, it, when when inspiration comes to you, how much do you have? Do you have the whole story at once? Do you have just a little bit of it? What, what, what starts you off on your journey?
1: Um, usually it starts with characters and just like it did with Disappeared, um, me thinking what must it be like to be this boy? Um, and then I build usually uh, a story around it. Um, and that's, it, it, again, it's usually me um, with a character and um, a, a situation that will most challenge this character. Um, it, it's very rare that it starts with a concept first, but um, that's what happened with the Countdown Club actually. Um, it started to meet with a, a concept in that situation of um, what happens um, if you come into school, or, or in that case it was school, um, and you get a note, five days to die. Um, in this case, it's several kids um, who get a note, five days to die, seven days to die, 11 days to die, each, each child Uh, Each each teen, it's not it's not children. Well, their teens are children, but you know they have um, basically expiration dates. They find notes with expiration dates, and they're they're very different kids. Some know each other, some don't, but um, all end up coming together to um, find out um, who is sending these notes and what's happening. Especially after um, one uh, kid, um, one uh, of the kids who received a note, their house burns down. Um, with um, with him and his mother inside, which I know is, is horrible, but there's there's a lot to the story. Um, and uh, it's um, I, I know it's teen suspense. So, you know, it, it, it's it, it's pretty intense, but it is also um, to me again, it's about these teens in this situation and um, and what these very different kids will do. And um, and when it starts with the situation, to me, the next question is, who um, is gonna be most challenged by the situation? And I, again, chose two um, main points of view to tell the story. And one is Jack, who um, has a very challenging home life. He, um, which I don't wanna to get too much into. I, I, I hope people will go pick up the story, but he's, his um, brother is very, very sick and he um, is has got a, a pretty abusive home life, but he cannot leave because he cannot leave his brother behind and he cannot leave his brother alone and he can't let anybody in on what's happening. So even he, he doesn't even want to reveal to anybody that he's got a note. He doesn't want to join with any of the other kids to, to talk about what's going on because you know, he does not want to talk. He does not want to talk about anything. He doesn't want to let anybody in. Um, it's just fine if people think he is a, an ass because um, that means nobody wants to get to know him. Nobody wants to get close to him. Nobody wants, nobody can possibly find out what's going on, send child services, get, you know, separate him and his brother, anything. Um, and, and so he's a very, very real um, character. Um, and there's things I want to talk about with that character about people not seeing what they don't wanna see, not asking, not telling that various things that I, I wanna deal with with that character. And that that's another important thing with stories to me is things that I wanna talk about with people, with society, with characters. Um, anyway, the other one is more of a Pollyanna. She's very much more of a, um, she, she wants to see the beauty in the world and so that's what she sees and she, she sees almost the antithesis to him. Not in a bad way, just in a, She's, um, she's artistic, she sees the beauty and um, she's being forced to see an ugly side of the world that she's not really confronted before. Um, and there are other characters involved as well um, that all have received notes were all very different types. And um, I just, um, and there's more going on to the story. I'm only really telling you these two points of view. There's, there's obviously more going on um, because there's something behind the notes um, that you reveal, and and that's something I like about stories too. That are built like onions with layers and and things that you peel back. Whether it's adult suspense, whether it's young adult suspense, um, I really like things where you um, you might think you know, but do you really? And and that you might find um, other angles, other elements as you're as you're going through the story.
0: So uh, well, I've got all kinds of questions. Um, <laughs> what, what, uh, what do you think it is that I mean, there may not be a good answer for this but what do you think it is that that attracts you to young adult suspense because uh, i know you've written adult suspense a, a, as well but there's there's vampires there's there's some kind of suspense element in your work what do you think it is that that, that compels you
1: um okay well my husband will call me and and has called me um a mystery slut. <laughs> i hope that's okay to say um, what that basically means is if it's a mystery, I will read it, I will watch it, I will devour it. Um, there's just something that very much draws me to um, to mystery and I think a sense of justice. I like to see justice delivered. I like to, to it makes me um, feel that all is right with the world. It makes me um, feel that karma is working, that um, it, it makes me... Um, kind of reset to center, I guess, is, is is what it is. So it's not so much that I like people in horrible situations so much as that I like when those situations are resolved. I like to feel that um, that the person responsible is, um, is caught. I like, it's not so much that I like the horrible deeds so much as that I like um, the chase and the puzzle and the mystery and the resolution Um, gives me a satisfaction that I I really feel. Um, And as far as for young adult, I feel like that is such a um, a dramatic and intense time in our lives, but also for a lot of us, that is the time when um, uh, real adversity strikes, real um, things that will have an effect on us for the rest of our lives. Um, hit us, whether it is something that is really traumatic, a lot, for for a lot of us, for me, I know, um, it was in my young adult life that um, some traumatic events um, hit, which is probably why um, I know that um, teens face um, trauma, face intensity, um, why some might be, well, how can you put teens in these intense situations, to which my answer is, do you think they're not? In intense situations, do you think that just because we don't talk about things, teens aren't going through things? Um, I don't think that not talking about things um, helps anybody. All it does is make people th- feel alone in what they're going through. Um, make them think that they can't talk about it, that that nobody has been through it before. Make them feel isolated in, in what they go through. Um, but um, going back to it, I think that, that that is a time in our lives when we are going through very very intense things, and I think that um, bringing that out um, and and dealing with it and bringing characters through that and to the other side is something that is important to me, um, and it is um, I guess very dear to me.
0: So hopefully, when uh teens who are going through whatever adversity they're facing that if they read these books they're going to feel less alone they're going to I find when I read um, either history uh, or a horror story because history is a horror story um if uh, if I'm reading about someone whose situation is much worse than mine especially during uh quarantine and, and then the 12 of 2020 if I could find a good horror story that took my mind off it like well okay, This is pretty bad, but it's not nearly that bad. (laughs) I think
1: that's why horror has been so popular during, um, you know, during quarantine, during COVID. It's really interesting, um, publishing trends, it's either been um, heartwarming, like heartfelt, like happier, you know, um, more cheerful reads, like, um, you know, almost cozy fantasy is is a a phrase that's been coined more during, well, not, not more, it's been almost coined during Um, COVID. Um, So that's a trend we've been seeing, or people have been going back to old favorites, especially early on during COVID. Um, People were just going to their own bookshelves, going to old favorites that they knew um, didn't hold any tension or surprises for them. Um, So that was something that was going on. Um, Or or horror, you know, where, like you said, it was, um, sure, we're in bad times, but it's not that bad. Um, And so the comparison um, or the catharsis of horror um, was, uh, you know, and and I, I find I've been reading a lot of horror recently as well. So um, it's it's very interesting those two different paths, and they're not necessarily divergent. I've been wearing uh, wearing I've been reading um, and watching a lot of rom coms and things like that, but also horror. So you can do both. There's no reason that you have to choose one path.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah, no, a little, little bit of everything. Variety is the spice of life and all that.
1: Right, exactly.
0: <laughs> and I would love it if just for, I don't know, for a week or whatever, you changed your manuscript uh, wish list page and just put mystery slut. And that's that's all we need to know about what you're looking for.
1: Oh, I can't even imagine the weird, the weird material I would get then, though. Oh, my goodness.
0: <laughs> yeah, that is probably a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so first thing in the morning, you take a five hour, I'm sorry, five mile walk out and then you're back at your desk about what time? Um, So let's see.
1: So we actually meet up to walk um, by about 545, six o'clock. I'm back writing by a little after seven because we power walk. Oh, my goodness, we do not. Uh, (laughs) We do not walk slowly. Um, So we power walk. Um, So I'm back by about 715 writing. Um, and then I'm up at my desk uh, up here by about 9, 15, um, sometimes earlier, um, depending on whether my computer's calling me. Um, so, so, yeah. Two,
0: so roughly an hour and a half to two hours. You've got your coffee and that's hard, hard writing time. What does this successful writing day look like?
1: Um, I Yeah, I would like to say that's hard writing time and that I don't get distracted by anything. But let's say I get an actual hour in. Um, because my dogs are, you know, I say that they need a walk, my daughter will call, um, you know, something happens. But let's say I get an hour hard writing time. Um, so, four pages a day is what I aim for. Um, and that's, that's usually my, my quota. And I usually make it, it really depends. I've been working on um, an epic fantasy recently, and um, that takes a lot more um, out of me. Um, and, and so, usually, my quota on that. Tends to be more like three page, three pages. So I'm not quite getting the um, the quota as I w- that I was on my uh, suspense or my urban fantasy. Um, there's just a lot more pieces in play. I've actually got a lot more viewpoints in that. Um, so it's it's not as it's not going as quickly, but it's uh, I think going to be amazing. I hope. I think we'll see. Um, we'll see. <laughs>
0: I find I feel that about every project I'm working on. This is going to be amazing. And then I get close to the end, like this is the worst thing ever. And then I revise it a few times. Oh, it's it's pretty good. Right. And I I haven't written a bad one yet, uh, to the best of my knowledge. (laughs) So, (laughs) Do do you feel something similar?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a roller coaster. So I go from this is the best thing I've ever done to Oh my goodness what was I doing in this section and then you and then you fix that section you're like oh it's amazing now it's amazing and then you get to the next section where you're like I don't even know what I was trying to say here and and then you fix that section and then you know it's so I'm in that revision process where it's a roller coaster um and and I so I'm in that revision process where parts of it are amazing and I'm sure it's the best thing I've ever done And, and it's, you know, everything you've done is the most significant thing you've ever done. This is certainly the most significant, ambitious thing that I've ever done. And it's really meaningful to me on a lot of levels. And, and, and then I'll get to a part where I'm like, what, what was I even doing that day? Did I, had I not had my coffee? Like, (laughs) what? Um, So I'm, I'm hoping to get to the part where I, I, I feel like somebody else might have, must have written it because it's that good. You know, how, how you feel that way about yourself sometimes. Um, so I, I'm, I'm hoping that I will get to that stage with this book. You know that stage.
0: I do. Um, There's there so many. It's just like like the grief process and five other processes combined <laughs> writing a novel. It's, it's just different stages. Um, but um, I would think that Going through them yourself on, on such a regular basis makes you an ideal advocate for authors as an agent because you know the experience, not you know, not not one for one, but you can closely identify with the, the different emotions and the, the highs and lows that, that go in with, with composing a manuscript.
1: Yeah, I, I I think so and I hope it does. And I think it makes me um a better um editor when I get to working on my author's manuscripts. I think it helps me. Um not just tell them, hey, there's something wrong here, but I, I think it helps me identify sometimes you know what it is and how they can you know and give them productive suggestions for it, not just say, hey, this is this is wrong. I, I'm, you know, hopefully I can come in and, and give them suggestions. But I think one of um, my strengths as an agent though is that I just I, I really can identify with the um, anxiety that comes with being an, an author and you um, and can really uh, support my authors in that and and translate sometimes anxiety speak um, when I'm talking to the editors and when I'm talking with the authors and um, put their fears to rest and and really um, understand where they're coming from on all of that. And um, I know that some of my authors, when they're talking are really coming from such a place of um, not having the power over their um, their all aspects of what they're doing and not being able to see um, all aspects of the process. And so being able to walk them through that or um, or, or translate everything that is that they're seeing or not seeing for them and um, being able to the best of my ability to um, alleviate their anxiety. You, you can never alleviate it entirely, especially, Um, we all have uh, so much anxiety. It's the whole imposter syndrome that goes into, um, you know, being an author. Um, We all have that. It's so funny as writers, you all, you have to have that kind of confidence and kind of hubris that you're writing something that is good enough, wonderful enough that the world is going to want to see it and hear it and read it while at the same time that horrible fear that gnaws at your stomach that it's not good enough that people are going to criticize you come after you uh, not understand not love all of that so you've got those two conflicting things. Um, But but any case, hopefully, uh, doing the very best I can to make it a gentle experience for writers and to not have those two sides quite as so much at odds with each other.
0: And people get annoyed when authors for periods of time develop a bit of an ego problem or a self-esteem problem. but just look at it objectively, of course <laughs> that just goes with the territory <laughs>
1: right it you know it does it does and it's it can be a tough thing to navigate if it really can and um and some do it better than others. <laughs>
0: Well, hopefully with, with practice, we're all improving. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea that um, after 9.15, it's, it's time to agent. So the book goes away and do you, do you aim for a word count? How do you know you've had a successful writing day that you can, you can put it to bed until tomorrow?
1: Well, you know, I, I kind of can't help but put it to bed till tomorrow because I've, so much to do and I will have, my work hours are saying for sanct. Like I can't, I can't write during work hours. I just have too much to do anyway. I have over 40 authors, so I don't have any choice in that. <laughs> I'm just too busy. Um, so, uh, you know, a successful writing day to me is really any day that I've gotten work done on the manuscript. You can't necessarily go by um, strict word count, uh, especially especially to me, especially while I'm working on the epic fantasy, which like I said, has so much in place because sometimes I might've just solved a a, you know, a plot issue or a world building issue or whose point of view am I gonna be telling this next scene in or chapter in and I've gotten started on that voice and I've set myself up for success tomorrow. So um, it, sometimes if you, if you have just a strict word count, it, I mean, it, it's different for every author. Some, some have to work on strict word count, or or whatever. So whatever works for you, it works for you. For me, if I did that, I would make myself crazy. I can't I can't do that. I can't set myself a strict word count. Um, and, and sometimes I tell myself I'll make it up on the weekend or things like that. Um, I know when I was really behind, I did three months almost nano style, except not really because I couldn't hit fifty thousand words. This for me, Raimo style was, I was not going to go back. I was not gonna worry about anything. I was not gonna edit anything. I was just gonna pull steam ahead, which is what I try to do anyway, but it's it's just extra hard when you're writing, um, well, epic fantasy, especially when you have to go back and get different pieces in play. When you're writing urban fantasy, or at least my urban fantasies like the Vamp series or the Latter-day Olympian series, they were all from one viewpoint. So I didn't have to worry about who's, whose viewpoint which scene was in or how many viewpoints I had or whether I was in this kingdom or this kingdom at a given time, things that I have to worry about with the epic fantasy. So it was easier to just go full steam ahead and not have to go back or decide that I had taken the wrong trail and I had to backtrack backtrack and fix it. So. Um, so a good day for me is just uh, a day when I have figured something out. If, if I had to stare at my computer for an hour to figure it out and I figured it out, that was a good day. So the, the goalpost moves depending on what novel I'm working on and what kind of novel I'm working on. Um, and I had to learn that with the epic fantasy because at first I was really beating myself up a little bit because I wasn't making the same kind of progress and I just had to realize that my process was different. Um, The urban, the epic fantasy, I hadn't had percolating in my brain for two years. Like most of my books, by the time I get to write them, um, I had been writing something else and I'd had contracts and deadlines. And by the time I got to write them, they'd been in my brain for two years. And the epic fantasy came to me almost like Athena from the head of Zeus. It was just fully formed. Almost, except that it wasn't, except that there was still so much to figure out. Um, And I just wasn't giving myself, I wasn't doing myself a kindness that I would do anybody else um, and letting my process be my process. I was really beating myself up for not having everything perfectly figured out. And I realized it just hadn't had those two years to percolate. And that's in some ways, in other ways, this fantasy had been building. My entire life, because the magic system and some of my thoughts about religion and some of my thoughts about um, some of the characters and um, and um, some of what I'm dealing with with gender and things like that have been really um, building in me for quite some time and bursting out of me, and I think that's why the novel had, again, jumped out like Athena from the head of Zeus, and I think why. I just wanted to, ru- wanted to rush it onto the page because it was so momentous for me, but I still had so much to figure out and so much to learn. Um, and, and, and so I've been learning it and it's really, I think, going to be amazing. I just feel such a sense of responsibility to get it right. And I realized that that's all just coming from me, but I've always been such a type A personality and such a, I have to get it right, um, that I'm putting all this burden on myself. Um, like early on in my, in my writing career, um, I, I always thought, well, I would reject me. And, and so I didn't let anybody see my work because I wasn't good enough for myself. And um, so writers out there, if I've ever said no to you or anything else, I've said no to myself many, many times over. So really um, I got there, you'll get there know that about the process. Um, But um, anyway, that's the burden I'm putting on myself. And, uh, and I am hopefully going to get there with this novel, because it means so much to me and says so much about what I feel about the world and everything. Um, And it's just, I'm sorry, I'm going on and on. But this is something that means very much to me. And I had to learn a new process and be okay with that
0: no long answers are welcome here because then we get insights that I'm not clever enough to ask the question. Uh,
1: to-
0: <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's a gimme. Um, I, I do wonder um, when you're, when you're um, an agent for you said 40 over other clients, and I assume you find most, if not all of them, admirable uh, in some capacity. Yeah. Um, is that inspiring that, hey, they're all doing such great work, therefore I'll do great work? Or is that a little bit intimidating that they're doing great work, how can I, how can I keep up with them?
1: Um, you know, early on it was especially intimidating, especially back when I knew I would reject me. Um, it was, I, I really, there were many days where I felt, well, these authors are so amazing so amazing. I mean, my my clients, I, I've taken them on because I feel that they're just brilliant, amazing people. I thought, I am just not worthy. <laughs> I am never going to be worthy to stand among them. I don't deserve, you know, I'm just not good enough. Um, and I could have quit. I could have. And there were days that there really were days that I felt like, and I thought, this is hard. And am I ever going to get there? But I it meant too much to me to quit. I've been writing since I was 11. Um, it is the only thing I've always known I wanted to do. Always, always, always. And any day that I don't write feels like a day wasted. I love agenting. I will never give it up. I absolutely love it. It, it, Again, it, it feels the type A personality in me. I love selling. I love negotiating. I love all of this. I, I'm a go-getter. I love doing it. Um, but any day that I don't write feels like a day that I did nothing. I, that I, it feels like a day wasted. Uh, if I don't write, ask my husband. I'm a bear. I'm not somebody you want to be around. Um, I, I love writing, and I can't not do it. I can't, um, and I couldn't give it up, and so I didn't. And I kept going. And I had a critique group, and I have a, now. I have a critique partner, and I. Still, will get um, beta reads. This this newest novel, I, I actually um, hired a developmental editor because there was a point where I was like, this this isn't capturing people the way I want it to, and I just know that I'm too close to it to figure out what it needs, and I I I did hire a developmental editor, um, and she. Really, um, I just got back her feedback just recently and she really, I think, nailed it. And I really um, am going into this very excited about what um, now I can bring to this. Um, and uh, I just um, think you just have to believe in yourself. But early early on, it really was very, very hard. And even now I have days where um, you know my authors just Especially, uh, some of them would just blow me away and I would just read something, I'd go, I will never write like this. But the, the thing is, I don't have to. I am never going to be um, this person or that person. And you know what, I shouldn't be. There shouldn't be another this person or that person. I'm not gonna name names, although um, I certainly could, but I don't wanna single anybody out and leave anybody out either. Um,
0: no, they are is the themselves and they are brilliant yeah. and, um, <laughs> what's that i said i think this is the perfect opportunity which is your favorite client um,
1: uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> i am not going to go down that uh. <laughs> um but um no but my authors are singular and brilliant and wonderful voices and and they should be and hopefully one day i will be a singular and wonderful voice Um, but I will settle for touching, um, the people that I touch and, um, and hopefully there will be those people. I, you know, I know I've already heard from some people that have loved my work and hopefully there will be more of them. And that is what I can do. Um, that is what I can do.
0: So, um, Looking at this on paper, trying to, to figure out how this all fits together and and, and how you've got two different rooms for a writer, writer person, agent person. Um, you had, what, 15 years at uh, Spectrum Literary Agency before you joined the Knight Agency? That's uh, yeah. 2008. So that's what now, that's been, uh, I'm so bad at math, another 14 years uh, yeah. on, on top of the original 15. So, when did you you wanted to be a writer since year eleven? So how does that parlay into your becoming a literary agent? and then also, when do you feel confident enough that yes, I would accept this i, I wouldn't reject me this time <laughs>
1: um, okay, so yeah, I've been in the business twenty nine years um so actually, so. Again, the, the thing that I've always, always loved was uh, writing, but also reading. I'm, um, and uh, when I first, okay, so I was a writing and anthropology double major. Um, and the, my two areas of fascination in anthropology were forensic anthropology and comparative religion which are two completely different aspects of anthropology. One is cultural anthropology, one is physical anthropology. Um, Anyway, um, so when I got out of, um, when I got my BA, I I applied to graduate school in forensic anthropology and I applied to um, jobs in publishing because I had also always wanted to be in publishing. But my father who is diehard practical and everything, Um, said, you'll never get a job in publishing. My dad sounds like Lurch. I can't do his voice. Let me try. Um, So my father sounds like Lurch. And um, he told me I'd never get a job in publishing. Never, never, never. Um, And uh, I decided I wanted a job in publishing anyway. And I was going to do my damnedest to get it. And I applied to jobs in publishing. Again, applied to graduate school. And um, when I got my interview at Spectrum Literary Agency. I happened to be reading, so here's where my worlds collided, I happened to be reading a book by Ken Goddard, who ran the national, maybe still runs the National Fish and Wildlife Forensic Lab out in Ashland, Oregon. And he had a book about a team of fish and wildlife agents. And I was reading it, and I went into the interview, and the book was in my bag, as if I'd planned it, but I hadn't. And We're doing the interview and I see the book up on the shelf and I said I'm reading that book and it's amazing and I took it out so she could see that I I really was reading it and from that point on um, my interview with Eleanor Wood just went off on the tangent of books and we were just talking about science fiction and fantasy and mystery and all all these wonderful books and uh, about a week later I got a call and they asked me some follow-up questions and at which point they said well you know because I was fresh out of college other people have more experience, but, you know, we really feel that you um, love books, and you know our books and what we do, and we'd like to offer you the job on a, you know, trial basis and see how you do. And uh, would you like that? And I said, well, yes, of course I would. Um, And so that's how I started my job at Spectrum Literary Agency. And it really was, um, was fate. And That is how I started off um, there. So I really always had wanted to work in publishing but I really didn't know at the time that agents existed. I knew editors existed. And so I thought I wanted to be an editor Um, and editors are um, wonderful and amazing. But after starting at Spectrum, um, it was only about six to eight months or something like that before um, I was allowed to take on my first client. And um, I did not sell my first client uh, but I sold my second client, who's Christy Golden, who I still work with today. And um, it was it, just from there, I never left. I stayed there for 15 years. And then when I did uh, move on, I moved on to the night agency. And I've been there for 14 years. And I've just been really happy as an agent, being able to take on what I want and sell to various lines, work with various wonderful editors, and um, work with just amazing, brilliant people. I can't think of a better job.
0: And did your father ever admit his mistake?
1: Um, no, my father is never wrong. <laughs> my father admits he was right in allowing me to change majors because when I first went to college, um, I was only allowed to take English on the understanding that I also took education to fall back on because I would never get a job in publishing. But I was a presidential scholar um, and that allowed me some leeway in in the majors and the classes I took and everything. And um, I had um, two advisors as a presidential scholar who helped me like really get my arguments set for my dad um, when I decided to change to just English writing and anthropology. So I really had my arguments all lined up when I went to my dad to say, this is what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna change my majors. And um, I got on the phone with him and I argued and my father said, right. And I kept arguing because I, he's never agreed with me ever in my, we still have never seen eye to eye on, on I think anything. And, um, and I, I kept arguing and I think I was like five minutes beyond that when I said, wait a minute, what? And, and realized that he'd said, okay. Um, so no, no, he admits that he was right in allowing me to change majors, but he, he was never wrong ever.
0: I'm sorry I, dad I, if you're listening I became to this podcast more right, is what I'm hearing
1: <laughs> right right right
0: and you you graduated uh summa cum laude right from the the state university of New York yeah um, just more evidence of that type a personality you go you go uh, 100% on anything you ever do yeah
1: yeah and i graduated early <laughs>
0: it's not just a morning walk it's a five mile walk and it's brisk I love it
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I was kind of worried when I moved to Florida from New York that I would lose my edge I actually I really was um but apparently I carry it with me so it's not a problem
0: This is something that I've been harping on. Esteemed audience knows that I have an axe to grind. I want to decentralize publishing. I want more uh, agents and editors out of New York. One, so more people can participate where the cost of living is a little bit lower. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that'll that'll increase diversity. And, and really, that's my main point. I, I want more people involved and I want it to be a less select class. But I also understand a lot of a lot of that has to be in person. You have to know the editors you're submitting to, you have to develop those relationships. So how are you managing to do that without living within the city?
1: Well, I think it helps that I spent the first 15 years in the city. Um, and so I got to know you know, people before I moved to Florida. Um, and I still, well, before COVID was going back to New York city and doing meet- in-person meetings um, several times a year. Um, but now with Zoom, it's a lot easier, um, you know, we can just do Zoom meetings. And so um, even, you know, I'm keeping up my relationships by Zoom or I'm making new relationships with Zoom. Um, you know, anytime I, I don't know an editor or want to, you know, get to know an editor or renew, um, you know, or just talk about, a, you know, talk with an author, talk about an author, you know, with one of the editors that I work with we're just getting on Zoom, it, it's, a, it's a lot easier. And um, I'm doing, you know, obviously, uh, well, some people are going to the international book fairs these days, but a lot of us are not because of COVID or travel restrictions. And so um, we're doing virtual book fair appointments. I just, I did, I've done a whole bunch of virtual London book fair appointments recently. Um, and then in the fall, I'll be doing a lot of virtual Frankfurt book fair appointments because we're not comfortable going to the um, international book fairs yet. Um, So, um, you know, we're just, we're doing a lot of our meetings virtually these days. Um, You know Some people are using Google, um, you know, Google Teams, Um, Amazon has their own Amazon Chime, you know, we're using a lot of Zoom. So, you know, we're doing just so many of our meetings virtually these days that it's not necessarily, you know, it's not necessary for us to be in New York or travel to New York all the time. Um, like it used to be. But, you know, I spent 15 years there um, back when it was it was uh, more necessary to be central, especially when I started 29 years ago. It was back in the days where you had to Xerox manuscripts. Um, we were not emailing them back and forth, we were Xeroxing manuscripts and sending them by messenger to the publishing houses. So if I wanted to do submissions to 10 houses, I was making 10 copies of a manuscript and we were sending them by messenger and I had a permanent divot in my shoulder from carrying manuscripts back and forth on the subway and uh, yeah, um, back back in the day, good old days.
0: <laughs> yeah, everything's a little bit more analog. You've got to be there in person. That makes sense.
1: Yeah. I, I actually remember way, way back when Eleanor was worried about us getting email because she was worried that it would take away from our office time that we'd get so distracted by the internet and by email that we wouldn't do um, all our work, rather than it really helping us save time and everything. Um, where you know now, of course, all the world's on, on internet, but you know she didn't know back then that this is the way the whole world was going to be. And um, of course, back then, remember we had dial-up, and oh my goodness, remember the days of dial-up.
0: And, and- well, save time. It, it, it gives with one hand and takes away with the other. Because yes, you actually save time because you email but she also spent how much time Doom scrolling on Twitter or <laughs> <laughs> right. YouTube videos or whatever. Right. Right. <laughs> Unless you found my YouTube channel, esteemed audience, that's never time wasted. But anyway, Right,
1: exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Nothing about books is ever time wasted.
0: Goodness, no. You're this is educational. This is improving your writing, uh, even even as you're watching or listening to us. So um, um, at, at this point, at 40, 40 clients you've got, sounds like you've got more than enough to keep you busy. Are you still out there looking for talent, still checking the, for queries?
1: Well, actually, I'm close to queries. I've got um, so many clients right now that I've um, just opened via referrals. Um, uh, even that, I've really got such a full list, um, but I just can never resist something that is amazing that I, again, that I just can't resist, something that I love, and um, so unfortunately, I am closed to queries right now. Um, we have other wonderful agents at the agency, but for the most part, um, they're not in the science fiction and fantasy uh, world. Um, some do the occasional science fiction and fantasy. For instance, Deidre Knight handles T.J. Clune, who is just wonderful, um, and we have uh, you know the other occasional um, uh, people who veer into science fiction and fantasy. Um, or horror, but um, for the most part, I am that person at the night agency. Um, however, um, you know, do me a favor, do go, go look at the night agency website um, and see who else is open to queries because uh, it is an amazing group of agents and I really, I really love being there. Um, I love the, the synergy that we all bring to the table. We all really share information and support each other. Um, support each other's authors, and uh, it, it's just a really great b- group of people.
0: I'll check the back catalog, esteemed audience, and, and find my uh, chat with uh, Christy Hunter, uh, who's also there at the Knight Agency, and she's, she's quite wonderful. Uh, hopefully open uh, to queries. If she's not now, she she will be again.
1: That's uh, true, and I should say that we do um, science fiction and fantasy in young adults, so several of the um, of the uh, agents do science fiction and fantasy in young adults, right? Like Christy Hunter, who handles uh, Lucella Samberg, if I if I'm not mistaken,
0: and everybody else who's there at the Night Agency. If you're hearing us and you're thinking I want to be on the show, great! I want you to come on the show. Email. <laughs> um, what uh, I always try to ask: What is it about the Night Agency for for um, uh, authors who are listening and wondering who they should submit to? What makes the Night Agency the better agency? What kind of services do they offer? What can authors look forward to receiving when they they sign with the night agency?
1: Um, First of all, I just think it's just an amazing bunch of people. Um, We are not competitive there, which is one of the things I like. We're really cooperative. Again, we all share information. Um, We have really great relationships with our foreign agents. We work with various film agents, whichever one is gonna be the best for a project. Um, we have a social media guy who handles our our Instagram and our newsletter and our tweets and things like that. And we all tweet for each other's authors, support each other's authors. Um, so we're all when you get one agent, you basically get all of us um, because you get all of our our shared um, knowledge and support. Um, and uh, I, I just think it's the best bunch of people, um, which is why it, it's our forever home. But if ever one of us needs um, information that the other has, um, we call each other up, um, we can you know, review each other's contracts, knowledge, hey, how have you handled this situation, anything like that. Um, and we're just always happy to share. And we are on, uh, we have a server and we're just on with each other all the time, um, giving each other background and material. So even though um, we might be spaced, for instance, I'm in I'm in Tampa, some are in Georgia, um, Nephi's out in California. Um, we are really um, all at at, at a keyboard's touch away.
0: And so, if there is a, a newer agent that maybe needs a little bit of help with negotiating or is looking at a contract and wants to make sure they're getting the best uh, terms, they're not on their own. They've got. All of the other agents that they can reach out to that can be working with them?
1: Right. Nobody's on their own. Um, And a lot, you know, a lot of our agents have come from publishing houses, so come from the position of being editors before, and so have that knowledge base as well, um, which it really expands all of, um, expands the knowledge base for all of us, which is wonderful.
0: Uh Sure. And so, Oh, so many questions. I wanted to make sure I ask about a submissions coordinator because I know you guys have had one at, at different times. And what what is a submissions coordinator and why should that not be a reason to concern if, hey, I don't want a submissions coordinator, I want to send my query directly to you? Uh,
1: we have had a submissions coordinator in the past, and that is somebody who um, basically um takes the submissions, um, you know, reads it, first decides whether it is you know, good enough to send on to the agent or who should see it, that sort of thing. Um, however, um, everybody got too busy to basically um, have one person designated for that task. So now everybody handles their own queries. Um, and if they're too busy or too full up, they basically just close the queries. And so that is how we're handling things now. Um, So there's nothing wrong with having a submissions coordinator for agencies that do have it um, because it's just a way of being able to um, deal with the huge influx of queries that they get and be able to winnow it down to a manageable um, size of queries for the agents to deal with. Um, However, the way that we um, now handle it is just that the agents are dealing with their own queries. Um, and um, deciding when they have time and room for new queries.
0: Gotcha. Ah, and then um, here's a, a ridiculously unfair question, and I acknowledge that up front before I even <laughs> ask it, but I'm asking everybody. Um, what's 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 the current state of publishing here? post mid somewhere in the pandemic? I never know exactly where we are, no matter what we say, it will age badly because we're probably not completely out of it or even close. Um, but between that, between consolidations of the publishers, between the, the spat of recent editors, quitting uh, because the the pay is just not high enough. It seems like a lot of a bit of doom and gloom in the publishing headlines recently. How, what's your take on the current state of publishing and how should authors be reacting to all this bad news?
1: Wow, yeah, that is a, that is a big question. That's sort of a multi-pronged question right there. Um, And the the thing is that um, we are, uh, publishing wise, we are coming out of the kind of austerity sort of state we were in at the beginning when people were not going out to the bookstores were not you know nobody was leaving their homes everybody was just looking to their own bookshelves as i talked about earlier not just looking to their own bookshelves but mostly looking to their own bookshelves and comfort reads and things like that and not really buying new books or buying new releases things like that early on in the pandemic anything that was newly released or particularly a, a new author new launch or something was really struggling um unless it was a really known name. Um, now, however, we are are out of that because people are going to bookstores, are getting out of the house, are are, are talking to each other, you know, word of mouth, all that. Um, and so um, discoverability is again a thing um, and and uh, it, it's not so hard to launch people. Um, so we're getting out of that. however, What we're still seeing, unfortunately, is publishers still holding on to the things that they said were just during COVID, which is trying to space out those payments even beyond publication, um, something that we're struggling with getting them to go back to. Um, So we're still having issues with that. We are still having um, issues again with the mergers, like you were saying, with publishers shrinking down to the big five, possibly the big four, if the um, Acquisition of Simon & Schuster goes through. I know the Justice Department has said, um, you know, let's look at that as, um, you know, a monopoly and 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 talk, you know, talk about that not going through. So, you know, we're looking at whether that's going to happen or not. Um, uh, you know, I know publishers always say, oh, well, we'll do that with, you know, they'll still be able to compete against each other in auctions, things like that, but still anytime when it shrinks down and you've got fewer publishers and you know, control in fewer hands, less competition, it is a bad thing. I mean, there's no way to look at that as a good thing. Um, however, all that said, um, books are still being bought, we're still seeing a good number of copies moved, um, we're still making deals, um, it, new books are still getting launched, are still getting a lot of attention. We're still seeing new imprints like um, we're Tail's new imprint at Blackstone. We're still seeing uh, some publishers uh, coming up, getting some getting some attention. We're hoping that some mid-sized presses will come up and compete a little bit. Um, we'll, we'll see. We're kind of at a, a, a time will tell point in publishing. Like you said, it's sort of all bets are off. We don't know where we are in COVID cycle, when another thing is gonna hit. Um, But I I think we're past the point when any administration, um, whether it be state or federal is really gonna go back to hard closures or close anything. So I think that we're looking at, I I know now I'm getting more into politics, but I think we're looking at the world looking at, or not the world, the country looking at this as, ah, it's our new normal. So um, I think uh, as far as people going out and discoverability and buying patterns. I think that we're where we are in terms of um, book traffic and discoverability and book sales and, and that kind of thing. I don't think we're going to be back to where we were at the beginning of COVID um, when we were in lockdown is my long and short answer. As far as people leaving publisher publishing and being overworked and things like that um yeah publishing has to change i mean you can't you know publishing you can't see publishing making these acquisitions like of Simon and Schuster and things like that and paying a million dollars for this or a million dollars for that and then not paying you know people enough who are working nights and weekends and and this because that's what publishing is it is not a 9 to 5 it's always been a more than full time job and you can't be asking people to be working more than full time and not paying them enough and not giving them enough um, ability to be upwardly mobile and expect that that is okay, especially when they're not getting any benefit from what they see as, run, you know, when they're seeing, you know, runaway bestsellers, when they're seeing you spend all of this money over here and over there and then telling them that you can't afford it. I know that publishing is a low profit margin industry. It is, there is no question about that. And there is no question that there have been challenges with the cost of paper going up, with um, losing you know, um, you know crates off the side of, of barges with um, you know, um, slowdowns with, with... I mean, there've been all kinds of challenges to publishing. I have no question about that. But at the same time, Publishing has money when they want to have it and you can't not have it for your employees who are putting in the work. Sorry, my soapbox, my Ted talk.
0: Thank you. No, That's I love it. I thought it was an unfair but possible question. And then you answered it. it was... Thank <laughs> okay. you. So if I've got a magic wand, Uh, And I'm going to ignore uh, COVID and I'm going to ignore our political situation. I don't know. I care about books. Uh, And I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to say fix publishing. What's the one thing you could do um, without restraint that would make a, a, you think, make a tremendous difference in improving some of these publishing situations?
1: Oh, Lord. Um, I guess I would say stop spending all this money on these political books or or, <laughs> or these celebrity books that you know are not going to make the money back and invest it in your employees. Invest it in your employees and stop when somebody leaves saying, oh, I'll hire a freelancer or I'll hire another dispensable employee mm-hmm. who you know we then won't promote or they won't be gone or whatever. Like invest it in your employees, invest it in people who you know, give people an investment in what they do and it will make, you know, it'll be worthwhile back. Um, But also, you know, you're losing a lot of really great publicity and marketing people because they look at what they can make in publishing and they look at what they can make in other industries and they'll jump. And we've seen a lot of that too. It's, It's very hard to keep publicity people in publishing. And that is a shame as well. And we need to stop that from happening. So I really think that it really reinvesting in your biggest, most important resource, which is the human resource would be my suggested way to fix publishing.
0: Gotcha. And yet for, for all of that, I know 29 years ago when you started in publishing, it was a tremendous salary right off the street, plus all the benefits you could possibly handle. Oh,
1: oh, yes. Oh, I was living in a palace my first year. Oh, yeah. but you, Oh, yeah, I was living with my parents and commuting two hours each way when I first started in publishing.
0: But you thrived. Here I am 29 years later talking to you uh, about all the books you've published, all the clients that you're continuing to make deals for, and I'm sure that you started with other people at around that same time who are no longer in publishing, because I've talked to people four years ago who are no longer in publishing, so I'm sure over 29 years some folks have, have come and gone. What do you think, other than being a type A personality who goes every and everything as hard as you can, what do you think separated you from those people who weren't successful in publishing? Uh,
1: I just don't think I could imagine doing anything else. I mean, obviously I I guess I could imagine going to graduate school for forensic anthropology, Um, but the truth is the school that I really wanted to go to, um, they got in touch with me and they said, we need one more thing for your application. We need one more um, recommendation from uh, a professor. And I wrote to the professor, and I said, "Oh, I need this recommendation." But you know what? I didn't. I didn't follow up. I didn't write very hard. I didn't work very hard because I think I didn't really want that, and I really wanted publishing. And so I tell people, publishing got back to me first, and it was true. But it also was where I belonged. And I just, I just once I was there, I couldn't imagine being anywhere else, and I just didn't really want to be anywhere else. Um, I just loved it. And you know what? Um, Eleanor was a great um, mentor. She was a really great mentor. She really taught me a lot. Um, uh, great lady, great mentor. Um, and I just I just couldn't imagine doing anything else. Um, it was a, a, a great story um, I, that I like to tell. So I started um, March 1st, 1992. Um, and uh, I believe it was March 1st, 1992. 93? How long ago is this? Anyway, um, no, it no, must have been 93, 93. Um, anyway, so, uh, and just before Fourth of July, so there had been a, a book that um, was written by uh, Larry Niven, Jerry Purnell, and Stephen Barnes, I think it was, or maybe it was just Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell. It's been a, 29 years now, so you can forgive me for this. And uh, anyway, she wanted my uh, opinion on it because it, it involved a generational gap and and uh, sort of a war between the generation or a battle between the generations. Really, that's not what it was about, but it was involved in the in the science fiction novel. And I gave her my opinion and everything after reading it. And she says, "Oh, that's really good. Would you write that up and send it to Larry Niven?" And I said, "I'm sorry, what?" Because I was fresh out. So what? She says, "Yeah, just write that up and send it to Larry Niven." And I. I, I I thought I, I couldn't have heard her right, so I um I went home just just dreading just just but but she told me to so I I did and I and I and I wrote it up and and I was honest but I was of course very pumped but I was just I was I was in terror I thought this could get me fired, this could get me fired I'm I'm sending my editorial notes my thoughts to, to Larry Neve I'm getting fired, so <laughs> I did it and I sent it off and this was just before. Um, just for fourth of July weekend. So all fourth of July weekend I couldn't even enjoy it because I thought I'm getting fired. I'm getting fired and coming back after the weekend and I'm going to be fired. He's going to call up and say who is this upstart and I'm getting fired. And I come back and I hear nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. July goes by. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And uh, must have been into August now or whatever and, and I have to call him up to find out how many authors copies he wants of something, right. And I call him up and uh, he says, oh yes, Lucy Diver. Yes, I have your letter right here. Very helpful. I almost fell off my chair. Almost fell off my chair. <laughs> That's one of my favorite stories from publishing because I just was sure I was getting fired. I swear to you, I'm not sure like I must have eaten but I, I could swear I didn't like eat for a month just sure I was getting fired. And, um, and that was my story. I got to send an editorial letter to Larry Niven within months of starting at Spectrum Literary Agency and I didn't get fired. So um, I, I really think that was part of the reason that I got to, you know, not too many months after take on my first client is because, you know, Larry Niven said I was helpful. And like, I was going, you know, anyway, that was, um I don't even remember what the original question was, but that was my answer.
0: Well, that, I mean, that's got to give you a lot more confidence going forward and a lot more, um, uh, leeway and making sure you're giving your honest opinion to other folks who aren't uh, as big a deal as Larry and and even some who are.
1: Yeah, so there we go.
0: <laughs> well, uh, another question, I'm of our time, I, I know it's flying by, but a question I, I make in my business to ask every publishing professional who's ever come on the show um, is... Uh, we know that publishing does not have the best track record when it comes to inclusion and a diversity of, of authors' voices and, and, and diversity um, within publishing about who's making the decisions about who's going to be heard. Um, and, and I always like to toss out the caveat, that this is America, publishing is by no means the only industry that has that, that particular issue, but publishing is we're focused on. So what are you seeing... Uh, publishing do to improve that? And what is the Knight Agency doing to improve diversity and inclusion in publishing?
1: Um, Well, I am seeing uh, publishing make a a concerted effort to hire more diverse staff um, and also to buy more diverse books. I know that that's something that I'm hearing everybody looking for in publishing. Um, I know the Knight Agency has always been about diverse books, always from our inception. And I know that we have a diverse staff as well in terms of um, LGBTQIA representation, um, in terms of uh, other representation. So I know that it's something that we have been um, always had on our minds. And I know if you look at my list, we've got a lot of really wonderful diversity in our list, in my list. So um, I represent uh, N. K. Jemison, Vaishnavi Patel. Um, some up and coming authors who you will be hearing about, like Damyanti Biswas. Um, we handle TJ Kloon, we handle um, Nalini Singh. Um, oh my goodness, I'm going to blank on six million names that I should be throwing out. Um, uh, I've worked with Lynn Flewelling for years and years and years. Um, oh my goodness. I, I, yeah, I'm going to be blanking on all of these names I should be throwing out right now, but that's because I don't necessarily think of, um, in terms of like which boxes am I checking out, who should I be throwing out when we're talking about diversity, I just think in terms of um, we should always be um, looking at marginalized voices and how we can, um, well, I you know, I, I just think that we um, Have a lot of Western fantasy out there. And um, I particularly am interested in other stories. Um, Again, one of my interests in college was comparative religion. And um, one of the things I've always found fascinating is how there are um, resurrection myths across cultures, there are um, twin myths across cultures, there are these myths, those myths. We have so much more in common than we have apart. And I, I just would love to see so much more of that brought out. So many more stories. Um, Vaishnavi Patel's um, "Kaiki," which is coming out. Well, by the time this podcast comes out, it will be out. Um, is uh, a retelling uh, of the Ramayana and the vilified Queen from that story, and um, and just a, a different take. And I just, I want to see more of those stories and more retellings, um, and and more looks at. Um, maybe not this take of history, but that take of history. You know, they always say that the victor tells the tale. Well, I don't want to look at that tale. We've heard that tale. I want to look at this tale, that story, that voice um, that we haven't heard. And, um, and and that's what I want to see and see more of. But, and I'm hearing that from um, every publishing professional I talk to. Um, and, and yes, some of it's a response to um, you know, the political climate, but I think a lot of it is, is authentic too, that we've heard the same thing again and again and again, and we wanna hear different things and we wanna see different things and we wanna be able to distinguish it from what's already out there um, on the shelves and available.
0: Another uh, rather twite question that I I also make it my business to ask everybody who comes on the show. Uh, Lucy and Diver, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost?
1: Uh, I have not ever seen a flying saucer. I have not ever seen a ghost. Have I experienced some freaky things? Um, Possibly.
0: (laughs) If you're willing to share, what kind of freaky things are we talking about?
1: Oh, well, um, okay, so when I went to, uh, went to Salem to research uh, one of the vamped books, um, just stepping out, even just stepping out of the, the car in Salem. Now, I won't say I am somebody who's necessarily sensitive to, to, to vibes, to things, um, but even just stepping out of the car in Salem, um, you just, it, it Feels different. It, it just, it just does. People say that it's the most haunted place in America, or I've heard Savannah, or I've heard other places, um, but to me, um, just stepping out of the car in Salem felt different. It, it did, and I, I felt something even just in Salem, um, but we went on a ghost tour, and I, I'm very aware that on ghost tours, sometimes people will, um, you know, either make up or emphasize a story or point to this building as someplace something happened just because this building happens to be still standing, but maybe it took place over here, but it's an empty lot or whatever. But anyway, we are on a ghost a ghost tour, and they're talking about um, Dred Sheriff Corwin and and how horrible he was, and and he was he was he was very horrible. Um, and this one story that existed, and I, my apologies if I'm mangling the story that I've forgotten in the years since I did this, but um, so so. Back during that time, um, once you entered a plea, um, your your goods could be basically confiscated um, until your guilt or innocence was determined. And if your guilt was determined, then um, your your goods could be um, uh, um, basically confiscated or permanently basically given over to, to the um, the Commonwealth or whatever to it was given to them. I forget what the details were, but anyway, but, the, but, um, but they could then confiscate your wealth. And, um, and so this one family's wealth had basically been, been confiscated. Um, and, and so when the sheriff died um, and was laid to rest, they stole his body um, and were holding it hostage against um, his family um, to recover their wealth from his family for the return of his remains was the story that that she was telling. And um, the person who was giving the ghost to her and she was saying, and this is the house where his remains were, you know, kept his skeletonized remains and all and she's making it very creepy. Well, and we had our backs to this other building while she's telling the tale. And um, and I I could not, my, I, I was just getting this horribly creepy feeling from the building that we had our backs to. And I literally could not stand with my back to this building, I just, it was, it was, as if there was something traveling up and down my back, this just creepy sense traveling up and down my back, and I, I just literally, I could not um, have my back to this building, and I didn't know what it was, but I thought I don't know what she's talking about here, but I'm pretty sure it happened right there behind me. I just, I, I just, I, I could not, and I had to move from where I was standing, and I've never felt anything like that before, and I, I'm not saying it was or it wasn't, but all I'm saying is. If it happened anywhere, I'm pretty sure it was the place that was behind me and that it, it was it was all creepy as hell as all. Heck, heck, if you can say that. Anyway, um, it, it was very creepy. And um again, not saying anything, but from that ghost tour, I had the weirdest things. My camera literally shut down. I had charged it just before going on the ghost tour. I it had shut down, and before it had shut down, I got some really seriously weird. Pictures, not not the orbs that you know, but but some serious like crazy streaks across. Then I'd gotten all kinds of crazy things, and my camera shutting down. And um, only in on Salem, never never before since. Um, so I've never seen a ghost, but I really seriously could not have my back to that building, could not focus on what she was saying or listen to her d- through the rest of that thing. It freaked me out. That's so my story. An
0: experience uh, like that knowing that you have had an interest in comparative religions. um, Does that offer evidence that's counter? you think, or does that offer a little bit of support? I
1: I don't know. If there was going to be a malignant spirit sticking around, it would certainly be Sheriff Corwin. Uh, He was malignant as all get out. he was the one, um, and apologies if I'm getting this wrong or the name wrong, he was the one, there's this horrible story, I'm apparently very more, but there's this horrible story, let me tell you about it. Um, <laughs> so there's this older man during the witch trials um, who'd been accused of, uh, accused of witchcraft. And um, he was a much older man and he refused to enter a plea knowing that when he did, his, his goods would be confiscated. And he wanted them um, preserved for his um, descendants. And um, so he refused to enter a plea. So Sheriff Corwin insisted that he be pressed he, to enter a plea, literally pressed, have um, stones piled on him. And so out behind um, the jail, they piled, um, they piled blocks on him. Um, and so for three days, he was out there with no, no food, no water, and everything, just having blocks pressed on him. And on the third day, um, Sheriff Corwin went out to see if he was ready to enter a plea and his tongue was hanging out and everything else as the story goes. And um, Sheriff Corwin took his cane and put his tongue back in his mouth and said, are you ready to enter a plea? To which all he responded was more weight and more weight was put on him and he died. This is how horrible this man was. And so I, I, I do believe if there was gonna be anyone who stuck around, it was gonna be him. And I, and I won't lie, I, I do think that maybe, um, Sheriff Cornwin in this experience, I had inspired the Whites that appear in my, the malignant spirits, the Whites that appear in my epic fantasy. Um, it, I, now that I think about it, it never occurred to me that that experience might be what inspired them, but, um, but I think that that might be.
0: Well, that goes back to what we were talking about uh at the start of this thing that a little bit of horror, a little bit of history gives you some better appreciation for your current circumstances. Like, oh well, nobody's put extra weight on me and put my put my tongue back on my mouth today. It could have been worse. <laughs>
1: right. Exactly. Exactly. And like you were saying, horror and history pretty much the same thing. Yeah.
0: So um, I think we could, we could go on uh, forever. This has been an absolute pleasure. You've been so generous with your time and I always wanna end while we're having fun. Um, so for tonight, I've got one last question for you. Uh, and that is uh, if you, and I'm, I'm gonna ask this as a two-parter since I'm talking to both agent you and writer you, If you could go back to at any point in your career where it would have been useful and offered yourself some advice, both as first a writer and then as a literary agent that might have made easier your path and might make easier the paths of everyone who's watching or listening to us, what would you go back and tell yourself?
1: Well, uh, writer me, I would say, don't listen to your father. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, and part of that is that my father very much believed in cultural um, uh, emotions, stuff them down, don't have emotion if you can help it at, at all. Um, and certainly you never express it, never. And um, and that was something, unfortunately, I took very much to, um, I, uh, I internalized very much, which was very hard for me in the beginning as a writer because I, I had a very hard time putting it on the page. Um, and I think my early years, struggling to write um, had a lot to do with the fact that I had learned those lessons so well. I had a very, very hard time um, getting into deep POV, really getting uh, into character, putting thoughts and expressions on the page, um, because anytime I let the least little bit show, to me, it felt like opening a vein, um, and it was really just opening the door a creak. And, um, and so a lot of my work, I think, is not as deep, my early work, Um, was really not as deep as it needed to be. And it took me a lot of years to get over that. Um, And I think in a lot of ways, I'm still getting over that, still being able to express myself and really um, allow it onto the page. Um, No offense to my father, that's how he was raised. That's how, it's a family thing. Um, And I, But I I think I would say, get over it. (laughs) And, And it's a really, really hard thing to do. Um, and I'm, like I said, still getting over it. Agent Me, um, oh my goodness. I guess I would just say, learn everything. I mean, just learn everything. And I and I really, really tried to. But, um, you know, I, I think I felt I knew more than I did early on. Um, you know, I came out of college having you know, been part of the Presidential Scholars and having been an A student and things like that. And I just, I didn't know everything I didn't know. And, um, you know, I I just, I I did, I, you know, I obviously I did learn a lot. And Eleanor was an amazing teacher. Um, I just, um, I wish I knew everything I didn't know that I would have just studied even harder. I don't know. I'm such a type A personality. I I don't like to, I didn't like anybody to see me not knowing anything. And so I wish I'd known everything I didn't know. So nobody could ever see me not having known anything. Does that make sense?
0: (laughs) That sounds- um, I wanted uh, to be
1: a five year long agent in my first year. Can I do that? Can I go back and do that? That, that's what I want to do. That's my answer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been an absolute pleasure. Where uh, where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff?
1: Uh, I am Lucy Diver on Twitter, lucyndiver.com uh, for my website. And then for agenting, it's night with a K, nightagency.net.
0: Uh, And as always, esteemed audience, for interviews with other literary agents, authors, editors, publicists, book people, the world's best people, head to MiddleGradeNinja.com, download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beans that will change your life. And always, as always, God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.